The aim of our Living with Diabetes podcasts is to share information and inspire, and we endeavour to ensure that the information provided in them is accurate. It's not a substitute for medical or health advice from a healthcare professional who's aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. We always recommend that advice be sought from your GP or diabetes nurse before making any changes to medication or before using any products or services referenced by DRWF. DRWF will not be held liable or responsible for failure to seek competent medical or health advice from a professional who's familiar with your situation. Views, information or opinions contained in podcasts do not necessarily represent opinions, standards or policies of DRWF. The inclusion of details about products or services does not indicate DRWF endorsement of them. Hello and welcome to the latest podcast in our series, Living with Diabetes, brought to you by Diabetes Research and Wellness Foundation. In this edition, we're looking at the development of metformin, which has become the preferred first-line oral blood glucose-lowering agent to manage type 2 diabetes. It was created nearly 65 years ago, but it took many decades of research to get it more widely accepted as a major component of diabetes management. To discover more, I've been talking to Professor Cliff Bailey, Director of Biomedical Sciences Research at Aston University. He's regarded as one of the world's leading experts on type 2 and contributed to the development of metformin over many years. So if we take ourselves back to the 1700s, people used a plant called Gallagher officinalis. Uh, Metformin was uh, able to provide a very sound treatment for type 2 diabetes. The need for good glycemic control as early as possible was marked solidly on the therapeutics map. I'm Claire Levy from DRWF, the host of our regular podcast, Living with Diabetes. On the 11th of January 1922, Leonard Thompson became the first person to be treated with insulin. Leonard was aged 14 and had been living with type 1 diabetes for two and a half years before being admitted to Toronto General Hospital. He was severely ill and weighed just 65 pounds. Leonard was placed on a starvation diet by his doctors which restricted him to just 450 calories a day. The first dose of insulin administered to Leonard lowered his blood glucose levels by around a quarter and reduced the level of glucose in his urine. However, due to impurities present in the insulin, an abscess developed around the injection site and Leonard's ketone levels remained dangerously high. Biochemistry professor James Collip continued to work on purifying insulin. He was successful and on the 23rd of January Leonard received his second dose of insulin and within 24 hours his blood glucose levels dropped by around 77% and his physical appearance improved remarkably. Just three months later he looked better and felt stronger and was discharged from hospital. Insulin has been life-changing for people living with type 1 diabetes 
and for those living with type 2, metformin has become the preferred first-line oral blood glucose-lowering agent to manage the condition. I'm talking to Professor Cliff Bailey, who was involved in some of the early research on metformin. Uh, thanks, Claire. Could I begin by just saying thank you very much for inviting me? Pleasure. I'm Emeritus Professor of Clinical Science at Aston University, and I've been involved for many years in diabetes research, and in particular in the early days in the work on metformin, which is now the primary agent used for controlling blood glucose in people with type 2 diabetes and I'll be delighted to talk about metformin today. So, Professor Bailey, could you tell us some of the history, when it was discovered, and how it was rediscovered in the 1940s? So, uh, the history of metformin is really intriguing because it was nearly discovered several times and then just overlooked. So if we take ourselves back to the 1700s, People used a plant called Gallagher officinalis, goat's rue or French lilac, which you sometimes see on building sites today when they've been cleared. It's one of the first to grow up. So this plant was used to treat what we perceived to be probably type 2 diabetes. It was certainly symptoms of diabetes. And then if you fast forward to the middle of the 1800s, this plant was shown to be very rich in a substance called guanidine. And in fact, the chemists dealt with this by actually putting two guanidines together to form biguanide. And metformin is just a biguanide with uh, two methyl groups attached. So we've come very close already. And then in the early 1900s, about 1918, there was an interesting paper in which it was shown that guanidine was able to lower blood glucose levels in animals. And in the early 1920s, we've got a situation arising in which um, metformin, which we would then have referred to as dimethyl biguanide, it's biguanide with these two methyls, was actually synthesized. So metformin came along, if you like, in 1922. And because guanidine had been shown to lower glucose levels, there were several derivatives of guanidine that came available for people to use to lower glucose levels and in fact metformin was actually shown to lower glucose levels in animals at the end of the 1920s but it was never actually uh, used as far as I'm aware for clinical purposes and there were other uh, guanidine derivatives that were used in the 1930s. But as we went through the 1920s and the 1930s, as you pointed out in your introduction, insulin had become available and insulin was considered to be the answer to diabetes. So these guanidine derivatives slowly disappeared. But of course, it was only really in the 1930s that 
the appreciation of insulin insensitive diabetes emerged. So the distinction between type 1 and type 2 was very blurred around those times. Now, we'll fast forward again to the 1940s. And in the 1940s, guanidine-based compounds were used as anti-malarials. In fact, they still are. Um, Proguanil, which is uh, paludrin, uh, was used to uh, as an anti-malarial. And there were reports then that in some people, these agents tended to lower glucose levels. But this was not taken forward for therapeutic purposes until towards the end of the 1940s, dimethyl biguanide, which is metformin, was uh, being used as an anti-malarial at the time that there was a flu outbreak in the Philippines. And it was found that it was very useful in uh, reducing the impact of the flu epidemic. And there were reports then that some people actually had a reduction in their blood glucose. We don't know exactly who those people were, but it's quite likely that they were people who may have had pre-diabetes or early type 2 diabetes. But this was not taken forward clinically. Now we'll jump to the 1950s, the mid-1950s, and this is really where the story um, gets exciting for metformin because it's been overlooked so many times but now we had a man called Jan Aron and he had a pharmacy laboratory uh, in Suresnes in the west of Paris and he took on board a doctor called Jean Stern to investigate the possibility that guanidine-based agents could help in the treatment of diabetes. And that's where our whole new chapter of metformin really begins. So what role did Jean Stern play? So Jean Stern was a very interesting character. Uh, he was born... Uh, 1909 I think and uh, he, he lived until 1997 so he trained in medicine in Paris and interestingly in his very early days he was actually involved in a trial that looked at a guanidine uh, based agent in the clinic we don't know exactly what that was uh, being used for but he did have uh, considerable experience in diabetes but nevertheless, in 1956, we know that he was working in Jan Aron's laboratory in, the, in Suresnes, in the west of Paris. And he was working with a pharmacist, Denise Duval. And they had embarked upon a program to look at guanidine derivatives. 
Now, here are our characters then. Jan Aron uh, encouraged and prompted the study and Jean Stern grabbed hold of it with both hands and set about this very ambitious research program along with Denise Duval. And they looked at a whole range of guanidine compounds and included in these were metformin and some other biguanides such as fenformin. And they looked in a whole range of different models. Um, we use the word model meaning uh, animals with diabetes and there was a slight difference here between several of the things that had happened earlier which was that they looked at animals that had diabetes whereas many of the studies that had looked earlier at biguanides had looked at um, animals that didn't have diabetes and of course the guanidine derivatives only have a very modest effect when there's no diabetes and in fact they were used in very very high concentrations where you started to get toxicity so Stern was able to get round that by looking in models that included diabetes and was able to show that these agents did indeed lower glucose levels and the one that had least toxicity he picked out was metformin and in fact it was able to lower glucose in non-insulin dependent diabetic states at quite modest uh, doses and so he tried this out on some patients and in 1957 this led to his uh, famous publication which was really the first one to show that metformin could be used to treat diabetes and as soon as this publication came out and 1957 is our marker here in the sand we we see that there were um, reports of other uh, biguanides fenformin and buformin from other uh, studies in other parts of the world showing that these could also uh, lower glucose levels in uh, adult onset uh, which we now recognize as type 2 diabetes so between about 1958 and 1961 metformin started to be introduced in a number of countries in Europe including the UK um, Aron's laboratory produced it and uh, we think that uh, Jean Stern was actually involved in naming it which was glucophage which stands for glucose eater <laughs> so early 1960s we see that Stern is very busy looking at metformin in clinical situations he uh, collared several of his colleagues around in uh, Paris to undertake these studies with him and he made lots of very very important observations particularly that people who developed diabetes in adult life particularly if they happened to be overweight were responsive to this agent 
But individuals who uh, had acquired diabetes early in life and required insulin, you couldn't replace the insulin with the metformin, but you could add the metformin to the insulin and improve the glycemic control. So these were very important observations. And so we have to have a, a very big thank you to uh, Jean Stern. He was clearly very perceptive. He clearly worked very uh, assiduously on this program and he provided all of the fundamental information. And before we move on from Jean Stern, I would just like to point out how his work prompted a lot of additional work. So uh, by the mid-1960s, we find that uh, particularly the uh, group in Edinburgh, which was uh, initially Leslie Duncan and Basil Clark, took on board these uh, observations of Jean Stern and they conducted the first large comparator trial where they were able to compare between metformin and other agents that were available for the treatment of uh, adult onset diabetes. Later on they were joined by Ian Campbell and this group provided the, the big evidence if you like. Um, also um, in Sheffield, uh, Frank Wood's group looked at the pharmacokinetics and in Sweden, uh, Life Herman uh, undertook what I think nowadays we'd call the real world studies. And eventually Aron Laboratories were acquired by uh, larger pharmaceutical companies and eventually by Leifer and they had some very clever scientists, uh, Michel Noel and latterly uh, Nicola Vinsberger, who took all of these studies of Stern and carried them forward. And that's how we have really got metformin set on the road. So in the 1960s and the early 70s, the information was starting to arise about metformin but there are a couple of bumps in the road. Yeah. The first one was that fenformin seemed to be much more potent than metformin. So metformin wasn't used very much. Fenformin was the preferred one. But fenformin started to show the problem of lactic acidosis. And that's the bump in the road. Yeah, so metformin's reputation became tarnished in the 1970s, and you've hinted there. So what happened and why? So this bump in the road actually uh, began right at the beginning of the 1960s uh, in the USA, where they used fenformin, but didn't ever at that time use metformin. So fenformin was used in the USA. Um, and in the USA, they conducted first large study to look at the uh, various treatments for what we now call type 2 diabetes. Uh, they conducted a randomized study. There were just over a thousand people involved and 
Some got placebo, some got the sulfonylureate or butamide, um, some got fenformin, and then there were groups that had two different uh, regimens of insulin. And after about 10 years, it became evident that lactic acidosis was associated with the fenformin. And by the about 1976, 77, 78, fenformin and indeed buformin, which was used in some other countries, um, became withdrawn because of this lactic acidosis. But this lactic acidosis hadn't actually been noticed with metformin. And then there was some evidence that it had uh, occurred with metformin, but this was mostly in people who had got uh, renal problems. And of course, metformin is almost entirely eliminated from the body through the kidneys. So if you developed a kidney problem, uh, then the levels of metformin would build up. But there's an irony attached to all this because Soon after fenformin was withdrawn, it became evident that the reason for a build-up of fenformin in some patients was because somewhere around about 1 in 10 people um, had a mutation in an enzyme which um, metabolized out fenformin. It hydroxylated the fenformin. So nowadays we would probably actually be able to pick out who would be susceptible to um, difficulty in metabolizing out fenformin and who would be otherwise okay with it. Anyway, at the time, fenformin and buformin, because of their link with lactic acidosis, were discontinued, but metformin limped on. But as you pointed out, its reputation now became tarnished. So it was used much less earlier than fenformin and now the the group was uh, actually, well, the group of compounds was actually uh, tarnished and uh, metformin was, it continued to be used but not very much. And it's in the 1980s then when we became involved with it and we started to look at its mode of action. We looked at how it acted on the intestine in order to uh, get glucose into the body. We looked at how it uh, acted on the liver in order to cut down the production of glucose. We looked at how it acted on muscle to enhance the way in which insulin was able to act on muscle. And we looked at the receptor and post-receptor pathways of insulin action to see how metformin interacted with these and acquired lots of new information about how this um, sidelined drug was able to work. And we got involved in talking to the FDA about the possibility of even considering uh, introducing this agent into 
for the USA. And of course, the FDA was very cautious because it had had uh, some uh, 10 years or so earlier to withdraw Fenformin. Anyway, uh, work began in the US to expand upon the action of uh, metformin and there were clinical studies undertaken by people who were well known in the field of diabetes, particularly looking at insulin resistance, uh, Ralph DeFronzo and Jerry Reven in particular. And they essentially followed up on the work that Edinburgh had undertaken earlier and used some of the new techniques that were available and they were able to provide additional information to go alongside our mechanistic information and that led to a whole new era really with metformin coming along for the USA. DRWF, staying well until a cure is found. You're listening to Living with Diabetes, a regular podcast from DRWF. We continue our conversation with Professor Cliff Bailey on the development and use of metformin to lower blood glucose in the management of type 2 diabetes. I asked him about the rehabilitation of the use of metformin in the United States in 1995, following its approval by regulators there, and what difference that made to its wider use. It made quite a big difference, Claire. Mm. Um, The studies that uh, had become available towards the end of the 1980s and the early 1990s provided a, a database which substantiated the safety elements of metformin and... Uh, led to the FDA providing uh, approval on the very last day of 1994 and metformin was introduced in the USA in May of 1995. And uh, as soon as it became available, of course, this provided uh, a whole new therapy that people could investigate and they started to provide more and more information then about the favorable benefit risk uh, ratio of metformin in type 2 diabetes and substantiated the early work of Stern, the early work from the Edinburgh group and the the work from uh, the DeFronzo and uh, Reven groups. And this uh, led to uh, a feeling of, well, metformin might be well worth considering. And then in 1998, we got the results of the UK PDS. Now, the UK PDS is the United Kingdom Prospective Diabetes Study. And it uh, reported that of the various treatments that were available since in 1977, for the treatment of type 2 diabetes, metformin was as good as the rest for controlling the glucose. And this was a very big study at the time. It was over 4,000 patients. It was across 20-odd centres in the UK. And it was thorough, it was well-organised and to show that metformin 
was as effective as anything else that was available was extremely reassuring. But there was uh, another feature here, which was that the metformin-treated patients were less likely to suffer from cardiovascular problems. So the UK PDS provided the uh, solid evidence that the long term, and we're talking here 1977 through to 1998, that uh, metformin was uh, able to provide a very sound uh, treatment for type 2 diabetes. And we owe a very big thank you to the late Robert Turner at Oxford and also of course to Rory Holman and David Matthews who worked with Robert to ensure that the UK PDS continued through all sorts of ups and downs. And this study then really told us that metformin was the ideal first line glucose lowering therapy for type 2 diabetes. So a big thank you to the Oxford group for uh, this massive study. And remember this, this study, the UK PDS, changed really entirely the focus on type 2 diabetes and ensured that the need for good glycemic control as early as possible was marked solidly on the therapeutics map. So what happened after this was that there was much more interest in metformin. Uh, they become available, uh, the extended release formulation of metformin, there were fixed dose combinations of metformin. There had been fixed dose combinations of metformin earlier, but now the metformin was the primary agent and other agents that went with it were secondary to the metformin. So the dosage was based on the metformin. And then uh, 2002, I think it was, that the uh, DPP reported. Now the DPP was the Diabetes Prevention Program. It was a study undertaken in America uh, looking at the ways in which you could prevent progression of pre-diabetes, which was impaired glucose tolerance and impaired fasting glucose, to decrease the progression of pre-diabetes to type 2 diabetes. And metformin was included in that study. And the metformin group was shown to indeed gain a benefit of a reduced progression of pre-diabetes to type 2 diabetes, particularly in uh, younger pre-diabetic patients and particularly in uh, those who were overweight. So now we've got evidence that metformin is very important in the control of blood glucose in type 2 diabetes and can also be useful in the stages just before type 2 diabetes in reducing the risk of development of 
uh, diabetes. And that takes us then into the era, era of uh, international guidelines, consensus and position statements, because now we've got uh, an agent that can be put at the top of the algorithm and about 2005 I think the, the IDF uh, produced a guideline with metformin at the top and then uh, we've got uh, the other guidelines that came along but just as that was happening the UK PDS provided the results of a 10-year follow-up. So we've gone from now 1998 to 2008. And in 2008, the UK PDS data showed that people who had taken metformin uh, right from the start of their diabetes diagnosis not only continued to have um, some benefits for their glycemic control, but they also continued to have a reduced long-term um, risk of cardiovascular complications. I emphasize long-term here. The benefit was there. So this um, provided reinforcement for the um, benefit of metformin. And in fact, uh, I think it was 2011 that metformin then became included in the World Health Organization's uh, list of essential medicines. So we're coming through to a, an anniversary, Claire. We are indeed. We're approaching the 65th anniversary. Uh, and how is metformin being prescribed today for type 2 diabetes? Okay, so we're seeing now the era of guidelines. This started in the uh, early 2000s and what we have found is that metformin has been included as generally the preferred first line glucose lowering uh, pharmacotherapy for type 2 diabetes in pretty well all of the international guidelines, whether that be the ADA, EASD guideline, the ACE guideline in America, the IDF guideline, uh, even most of the national guidelines, so for example NICE in the, in the UK. And the reason for this is that not only did metformin show in the various trials that it had good glucose-lowering efficacy, but it did not cause hypos, so it could be prescribed without risk of causing uh, any severe hypoglycemia. It didn't cause weight gain, and of course sulfonylureas and insulin can cause weight gain. And also metformin, because it acted differently to any of the other agents, was compatible for use with other agents which could be added on. Uh, we're dealing here in type 2 diabetes with a progressive disease where as time goes on, uh, more and differently acting agents are required. So metformin was a very convenient starter. And also that 
information that in the long term patients receiving metformin were uh, showing less cardiovascular risk. Then there were other benefits that started to emerge about um, the effects of metformin and these really centered around countering insulin resistance. So there were several of these other potential benefits that started to emerge. And metformin is also showing good results for gestational diabetes. Can you explain more here? Yes, that was one of those important benefits, Claire. Um, I should mention right from the start that metformin doesn't actually have an approved indication for use in gestational diabetes, but it was evident that metformin was not teratogenic. It didn't seem to upset the fetus. Now, as we move into the um, 2000s, we find that there were more and more young people with type 2 diabetes. And young ladies with type 2 diabetes were becoming pregnant. Um, some of them were already receiving metformin. So we would normally use insulin in pregnancy to control uh, blood glucose. So when someone who already had a type 2 diabetes and was already receiving metformin became uh, pregnant and they were on metformin, you'd, if you like, got information uh, uh, about the effect of metformin in pregnancy without doing any studies. And in some cases, people had taken metformin for quite a long time in pregnancy, and it became evident that um, no adverse effects seemed to occur. So this prompted proper studies to look at the effect of metformin in gestational diabetes, and it was looked at uh, to help control glucoses without insulin and as an add-on to insulin, and it was found to not have detrimental effect on uh, fetal development and to help control uh, glucose levels in the mother. It was also looked at in studies of people with type 1 diabetes and shown to help glucose control in uh, pregnancy. And it seemed to reduce the number of large babies and if you don't control glucose well in pregnancy, you get uh, large babies. So metformin was helping reduce the numbers of large babies in people with diabetes. And maybe it did increase a little the number of uh, uh, babies who were small for gestational age. But uh, there have now been quite extensive follow-ups and um, no detrimental effects, as far as we can see, on the development of these young children. So that was an important uh, extra benefit of metformin. And it's also having beneficial results in other conditions, such as kidney disease. Uh, can you tell us more there? There were plenty of other benefits, yes, as you say, that started to emerge. The um, one that's probably been studied most extensively is actually the effect of metformin on cardiovascular risk. Now, it's important to appreciate here 
that we are dealing in the long term and by the long term I am referring to years and years. So there were quite a few studies that said there were no changes in atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease with metformin in the short term. So people looked over six months, even a year, maybe a bit longer, no significant change. But if you look at the studies that have looked at five years and longer, you see this improved survival, you see this reduction in cardiovascular events. So metformin seemed to be having some benefit to reduce cardiovascular risk. In part, this um, may be associated with an effect to lower lipid levels, but that may be secondary to the improved control of glucose levels. But there's emerging evidence that metformin can improve the vasculature by actually being able to improve vasorelaxation. And this appears to be very important in reducing atherosclerotic disease in the long term. And metformin has also been used effectively in heart failure and to reduce the risk of heart failure. But we have to remember here that, of course, if heart failure is very bad, or indeed if there's an MI and hypoxemia is likely to occur, then metformin's not the drug to use. It would, should be discontinued uh, for a time uh, if hypoxemia starts to emerge. But uh, as you point out, metformin has also been looked at as far as kidneys are concerned, and there was a lot of concern because when metformin levels were built up and um, there was a risk of lactic acidosis, this was usually associated with renal, acute renal failure. And uh, it took a long time uh, for studies to be able to show that the metformin was not actually damaging the kidney, it was that something else had supervened to reduce kidney function and as a result the kidney couldn't um, eliminate the metformin and then the metformin would build up. So it um, has an interesting history here but it doesn't damage the kidney. Um, metformin's also been shown to benefit um, ladies with polycystic ovary syndrome it's able to provide several types of benefit here um, to reduce the uh, androgenization effect and also um, in conjunction with agents that will improve ovulation it is further able to improve ovulation and um, to achieve pregnancy and then there's information that metformin may reduce the risk of certain cancers, um, particularly colorectal uh, cancers. Now, this evidence is actually there in the UK PDS data. If you look back, you can see that there were fewer uh, cancers in the group that uh, received metformin. And then it became evident that in the Scottish database, uh, there was a link here that suggested that 
patients taking metformin were less likely to get certain cancers. So this is now being looked at carefully, but again it's long-term and it's reduced risk. It's not actually treating uh, the cancer, it's reducing the risk. Um, then there's evidence that metformin can slightly reduce inflammatory markers, so it can reduce inflammation, and this may have beneficial effects uh, across the board, including anti-aging effects. So metformin's actually been looked at as a, an anti-aging agent. And then in the last uh, two years, of course, we've had the uh, COVID pandemic, and there's some evidence that patients receiving metformin appear to uh, be less likely in the early stages of infection to develop severe infection. So maybe it's better health in some way. It might be um, reduced cardiovascular risk. It might be reduced risk of um, coagulation um, that might help patients with COVID who are taking metformin. And it might also be that metformin is able to reduce the cytokine storm. So there's uh, evidence there that metformin can offer quite substantial and varied um, uh, benefits. But it's important that if hypoxemia, severe sepsis occur, then, uh, then that's not the time for metformin. DRWF, staying well until a cure is found. You're listening to Living with Diabetes, a regular podcast from DRWF. Our thanks to Professor Cliff Bailey, Director of Biomedical Sciences Research at Aston University. And we hope to speak to him again in the future to discuss other drugs that are being used in combination with metformin. I'm pleased to say that DRWF is planning to reintroduce in-person diabetes wellness days and events across the country, in addition to some virtual events that have proved popular during the pandemic. We know living with all forms of diabetes can be a daily challenge. Our diabetes wellness days provide a relaxed and informal setting where you can learn about the many aspects of managing your diabetes. Family members, friends and carers are also encouraged to attend too. Our days create a sense of community and bring together a wealth of information, expertise and knowledge under one roof. Each day features an exhibition area where you will have the opportunity to meet and chat with visiting healthcare professionals, community groups, holistic practitioners and diabetes industry experts who will be on hand to offer advice on the latest diabetes related information, products and services. Alongside the exhibition area, a full programme of interactive talks and workshops will take place throughout the day, all delivered by the specialist diabetes teams from your local area. DRWF subsidise these days as part of our key objective activities and they're only £5 per person to attend. The Diabetes Day South takes place at the Solent Hotel in Whiteley, Hampshire on Saturday the 14th of May followed by the Midlands in Kenilworth on the 24th of September and the North in Hartlepool on the 26th of November. The first in-person event is at the end of April, the Diabetes Wellness Type 1 Family Camp. 
The two-day residential programme takes place from Saturday the 30th of April to Monday the 2nd of May at Whitemore Lakes in Staffordshire. The activity camp recognises the challenges type 1 diabetes places on the whole family. It offers an opportunity for bonding, serious fun and friendship. Camp is about making connections with other families in a similar situation and meeting new friends. You will be encouraged to try a range of activities including high ropes, abseiling, canoeing, climbing and arts and crafts together as a family. All the activities are designed to help create a sense of achievement and we take great pride in ensuring that every one of our campers leave camp feeling more resilient, confident, energised and positive than when they arrived. Volunteers, medical and nursing staff who have experience in dealing with a huge variety of paediatric conditions will be there the whole weekend to offer their support. Camps are entirely free and all accommodation, food and activities are subsidised by both charities. The annual family camp is run in collaboration with children's charity Over the Wall, together with a virtual event, the popular online Camp in the Cloud. This is a free-to-attend one-day virtual camp. These innovative, inclusive and engaging camps feature a virtual programme where families can experience the magic of a DRWF and over-the-wall camp from the comfort of their own home. Campers are given the exclusive access to the bespoke Camp in the Cloud platform where they can engage with a mixture of online and real-life activities. There are opportunities for campers and families to interact with other families who are attending the same Camp in the Cloud through secure message boards and fun video calls. Campers are sent our seriously fun box in the post, containing every single resource they need to participate. And last but not least, we're planning to participate in the United Through Diabetes virtual online event again in November. To keep up to date with the latest events programme, news and information, or to discover how you can continue to support DRWF, please visit the website at drwf.org.uk. This is Claire Levy from Diabetes Research and Wellness Foundation. Our thanks to Professor Cliff Bailey for talking to us and also to you for listening. I'm looking forward to joining you again in our next edition of Living with Diabetes. Living with Diabetes is a Blue Aurora media production for DRWF. Copyright 2022. Diabetes Research and Wellness Foundation. All rights reserved.